Shabbat Shalom, everyone, and Mazel Tov. There's a story told about an old, old Jewish booby and mother. Her name was Sadie, and she lived in Brooklyn. Anyway, she decides to take a trip to India to go see someone, and she arrives in India, but where she needed to go in India was deep in the hinterlands of India. And she had to take cars and horses and wagons, go over peaks and valleys and rivers and streams. She was going to an ashram. And she reaches the ashram and she's told there that no one is allowed to go into the ashram. And she says she must go to the top of the ashram. So then she climbs up this massive mountain. And then when she reaches the ashram, she's told that no one is allowed into the ashram itself. And she says, I must speak to the yogi, his name is Baba Ganesh. And they said, oh, no, no, no. No one speaks to the yogi Baba Ganesh. He only talks once every six months to somebody. She says, I don't care. Anyway, outside of the gate of the ashram, she neither eats nor sleeps nor drinks for three days. So finally they relent. They say, we'll let you go speak to the Baba Ganesh, the great Baba Ganesh, but in one condition. You're only allowed to say three words. Sadie says, fine. They bring her in. The room is clouded with incense. There are beads made of shade, shades made of beads. And she pokes her way through. And she sees the great Baba Ganesh lying on the floor in meditation. And he looks at her and she says to him, Sheldon, come home. See, the great thing about having people here, unlike seeing people, I can actually tell a joke and hear if people are laughing. I haven't been able to enjoy that for about five months now, so thank you very much. The reason why this joke is somewhat funny, all the Freudian Oedipal complexes uh, aside, the reason why this uh, joke has some humor to it is because we know how deeply true it is. What is the old mantra? The old mantra is, the funnier something is, the truer it is. And the truer something is generally, if you can twist it in the right way, the funnier it is. So let me show you how this works in real life. Because it does work in real life. A few weeks ago, the comedian, writer, director, producer, Canadian, Jew, Seth Rogen, appeared on a podcast with Mark Macron another Jewish comedian. And in this uh, podcast, um, they spoke about lots of things, not the least of which is this new movie that came out that Seth Rogen produced, directed, and acted it, and he wrote. It was called The American Pickle. If you haven't seen it, it's a nice movie. You should see it. And in the course of their conversation, another number of comments were made about Israel and Judaism. What ended up resulting from that was, within about two or three days, Seth Rogen ends up calling the head of the Sachnut of the World Jewish Agency, which is like the conglomerate head of like gazillions of Jewish organizations through the world. It's like the uber Jewish organization to all Jewish organizations. It's, it's massive in Israel, called the World Jewish uh, Council. Hasachnut in Hebrew. Anyways, during the course of this conversation, he speaks to Isaac Herzog, who's the president. And why does Seth Rogen end up after this conversation saying these things about Israel and Judaism that were inflammatory? 
Why does he end up in a conversation with the president of the Sachnut, of the Jewish agency? What happens is, as soon as word of this conversation from the podcast leaks out into the greater world, Isaac Herzog, the president of the Jewish agency, writes a letter to Seth Rogen's mother. She calls him up that day and says, Seth, you must call Isaac Herzog now. I'm not joking. And he calls him up. What did Seth Rogen say? First of all, you should know that in a subsequent interview he had with one of the journalists from Haaretz, I don't know if it's available in English, but it is available in Hebrew. You could probably Google translate it. It'll be awkward. I'm not sure you'll get the gist of it. He, did, he regretted saying what he said because he felt it was out of context and maybe he also meant it in a comical way or somewhat comical way. But he also admitted that there was great seriousness to some of the things he was saying. What did he say? He said two things in particular. Number one, it's stupid to have the state of Israel, to have all the largest Jewish community in one location. He says, if you want Jews to survive, they shouldn't be all concentrated in one place. The second thing he said was, is that the story of Israel that he was taught, and why, and he grew up in a Zionist home, for, for just so you know, his mother and father, his father was from New Jersey, his mother is Canadian, and they met on a kibbutz in Israel. The father, Seth Rogen, said many, many times over that he would have stayed in Israel. He's still the kibbutznik at heart. The mother liked the West Coast in Canada. I don't blame her. <laughs> you don't have to wake up at four in the morning and pick pears. It's good. Anyways, he goes further to say that the story that he was told about Israel and why you should support Israel was something that he believes is totally counter to the narrative that he sees today. And there was a, the, the, the narrative that he was taught and spoken of as a child and when he was growing up as a teenager completely ignored the fact of the presence of Palestinians and other Arabs there. And he said, he wrote, that I was told a lie. When I was a child growing up, And I think this is true for probably two and a half generations of Jews. We were spoken of and taught about Israel in a particular way. Me in particular, and I'm sure it's true for many of you who are watching or here, my father was on a tertiary maybe extension. He was a Holocaust survivor. He left Germany when he was one year old in 1936 but lots of family were lost. My mother was from Scotland. Her father fought in the war for six and a half years in the British Army. In 1953, they left Scotland and went to the United States. So the way that we were taught about Israel was, first about persecution, that Jews needed a state because we were persecuted that the reality of history has shown us that given the opportunity to murder Jews, people murder Jews. There's no arguing that, by the way. The second argument given as to why the state of Israel and why we should support it and why we're proud of it is because of conflict. 
And that is, from the very moment that Israel declared its statehood, from the very moment that there was conflict, people didn't want us to be there. And that from the moment that Israel declared its statehood, there was war, and there was war, and there was war. And then one of the great, what apparently was one of the great singular moments in Jewish history the past hundred years was the Six-Day War, when Israel finally laid the death knell in conventional warfare against all of its neighbors. Interestingly enough, after 1967, that really there has been no true conventional warfare against Israel. There was one last gasp, and that is the 1973 Yom Kippur War. And after that, there has been no conventional warfare against Israel. You know why people don't do it? Because it doesn't work. Israel cannot be annihilated by conventional warfare. The Arabs realized that the only way that Israel could be disturbed, upended, forced into uncomfortable diplomatic situations or practical situations is through unconventional warfare, what we call terrorism. But there's something concomitant with that as well. Here's the difficult truth. Over the past 30 or 40 years, there's been a radical shift in the Jewish world. The radical shift goes like this. 40 or 50 years ago, if you wanted to earn a master's or a PhD in biblical studies or Talmud or Jewish philosophy, or Jewish history, where would you go study? You know where you would go? You'd go to Brandeis, Columbia University, University of Chicago, UCLA. That is where some of the best and brightest Jewish minds, that's where they lived and where they taught. The Jewish Theological Seminary, Hebrew Union College, Columbia University, New York University. You get the gist of what I'm saying. Today, if you want to study with the best minds, Jewish philosophy, Jewish history, religious studies. Where do you go? Where do you go? Israel. You want to study and read the writings of the best Jewish thinkers in the world today? You know what language they write in? They write in Hebrew, not in English. And what you see concomitant with that is a dramatic change. And that is this, the distance that Jews have from Israel is as a general matter, general matter, of equal measure of their distance from Judaism. The criticisms that people lodge, not against the policies of Israel, but the existence of Israel is concomitant in measurement of their distance from their Jewish identity. Spoken in another way, let's say it like this, that people who do not support the right of the state of Israel to exist are people who are generally very distant from their Jewish identity. And, and perhaps it may well be that the only expression they have of their Jewish identity is their opposition to the state of Israel. I'll give you an example. Peter Beinart, who's one of the darlings of the left wing, he wrote a book five years ago 
outlining his case on the conflict of the state of Israel. It was 273 pages long. There was not one Jewish reference in it. Not one. Not one classic Jewish concept to articulate, articulate his thoughts and opinions. Apart from colonialism and intersectionality and other left-wing progressive attitudes, there was nothing inherently Jewish about his argument. Nothing. The arguments as to why the state of Israel is important to us has changed. It can't be about conflict and survival anymore. It worked for my parents, your grandparents, it worked for us, but it will not work for our children or our grandchildren because the cruelties, the physical violent cruelties of anti-Semitism are very distant from our realities today, at least the way that things are now, which is a good thing. And there's a better argument, a truer argument as to why Israel should exist. Israel should exist because we are a people. Israel should exist because a people should have a home. Israel should exist because from the very beginning, as we read in the Torah portion this morning, one of the only prayers of biblical nature is found in the Torah reading for this morning. And it speaks about the people coming into the land and becoming something. The idea of Israel and forming a state which has been in the hearts, minds, lips, and prayers of Jews for over 2,000 years is an idea that is aspirational. It is not to run away or be protected from the people who want to hurt us. The better argument is, is that we have a home because it enables us to be something that we were meant to be. Amos O's, Israel's right out Laura, it said it perhaps so beautifully. He said to have a land is lo rachlichyot. It's not just to live, elalichiyot, but to be the dreams, the existence of Israel is for us the great idea that in the right place, in the right time, that we no longer have to be a minority. We no longer have to make excuses or explain who we are. That we can be simply what we are.